welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that form us in the church and the culture. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 62, The Magic Kingdom. So glad you joined me today. If you enjoy the Soil and Roots podcast, would you think about giving it a great rating on your favorite podcast platform? Your review helps to grow the audience, and it only takes a minute or so. If you don't like the podcast, well, feel free to skip that request. We talk about greenhouses quite a bit here. A greenhouse is a group of 4 to 12 people who gather consistently to journey into deep discipleship together. We explore the ideas that power and govern us and the culture with the express purpose of becoming more like Jesus. If you'd like more information on greenhouses, check out the episode aptly titled What is a Greenhouse? or just reach out to us. Soil and Roots is a listener-supported organization, so if you'd like to join our growing group of financial supporters, we'd love to have you. You can make your tax-deductible contribution online using a credit card or a debit card or ACH at soilandroots.org. Alright, let's dig in. Our culture is suffering from three primary problems. If the goal of our discipleship is not just to know more about Jesus, but to become more like him, to be formed like him, we recognize our path is more challenging at the moment because of these three rather large obstacles. In order to become more like Jesus, we also need to know ourselves and our own stories, our hidden ideas. This type of journey is not on the radar in much of modern Christianity, so we find ourselves in a discipleship dilemma. In many cases, we don't even have access to specific groups that are designed to form us in the optimal mix of five elements, time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction, so we live in a formation gap. And if we want to become more like Jesus, we should certainly seek to understand his heart, his characteristics, the way he relates to people. We desire to emulate his habits, the way he sees the world and operates in it. We want to live our lives as if Jesus is living our lives. However, if we truly want to be formed more like him, we also need to explore his mission and his purpose. What is his overarching, inevitable goal? Well, the answer is the kingdom. Yet, as we've noted, many Westerners have little concept or education on what the kingdom actually is. This is Christianity 101, yet we've apparently skipped a few basic courses. We live in a generation that has forgotten the kingdom. But if we have a desire to journey into deep discipleship, we should do what Jesus told us to do, which is to seek the kingdom first. That's a difficult thing to seek if we've forgotten it. When I talk about soil and roots or teach a class, I often ask two opening questions of new participants. What is the gospel and what is the kingdom of God? As you might imagine, the responses to that second question vary considerably. Some of the most popular answers are the kingdom means everyone who is a genuine believer in Jesus. The kingdom refers to heaven. The kingdom refers to a worldwide network of churches. Just for giggles, I asked ChatGPT, the open-sourced artificial intelligence engine, to describe the Christian definition of the kingdom of God. And here is the first thing it suggested. A present spiritual reality. Christians believe that the kingdom of God is a present spiritual reality that exists in the hearts and lives of believers. It is often described as the reign or rule of God in the lives of individuals who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It involves a personal relationship with God, transformation through the Holy Spirit, and living according to God's principles and values, end quote. 
Well, I suspect ChatGPT is probably pretty close to describing what many people embrace about the Kingdom of Light, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's a present spiritual reality that exists in the hearts and lives of believers. But we presume it will one day be a comprehensive reality after the end of this age. Well, like many ideas we explore here on Soil and Roots, what we assume is often true, but not complete. We see evidence of good ideas that have become distilled. Is it true that the kingdom is a present spiritual reality that exists in the hearts and lives of believers? Well, it feels right. Though like many of the ideas we've looked at in our post-enlightenment ethos, we find this definition is almost exclusively centered on what? The individual. A present spiritual reality that exists in the hearts of individuals. The reign and rule of God in the lives of individuals. Is this definition complete or has it become distilled? Is the kingdom only spiritual, meaning invisible, and does it only exist in the hearts and lives of individual believers? Or is this common idea a derivative of a more comprehensive idea of the kingdom? This is a critical question. In fact, our unconscious ideas about the kingdom determine how we view the world and often dictate what sort of things we do in it. So today we're going to take a crack at describing and defining this kingdom, and we're going to pay close attention to the assumptions that ChatGPT and many humans with organic intelligence make regarding the kingdom as it might exist right now. As I've mentioned before, I've been leaving little breadcrumbs and hints about the kingdom throughout the last three seasons. However, back in season one, I baked an entire loaf. Episode three is entitled The Magnificent Seven, and it describes seven characteristics of this kingdom. You can go back and listen to it or read it if you wish, though here's a short summary of the seven things. Number one, the kingdom began with the arrival of the king. Number two, the king is also the key. Number three, the kingdom is growing. Number four, the kingdom is cosmic in its scope. Yikes, that one's a bit tricky. Number five, the kingdom is both spiritual and physical. Well, ChatGPT doesn't agree with that. Number six, the kingdom is already here, but not yet. And number seven, the kingdom of light is greater than the kingdom of darkness. Now, my guess is most people would fundamentally agree with the first three characteristics right off the bat. The kingdom began with the arrival of the king. Philip Bethencourt writes, quote, With the coming of Christ, the kingdom begins not in the coronation of a mighty king, but in the birth of a crying baby. Yet as Jesus' ministry begins in Mark, he announces the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What Israel had long awaited, Christ had now inaugurated. End quote. Number two, the king is also the key. Most followers of Jesus hopefully agree that the way into the kingdom of light is by following its king. And number three, the kingdom is growing. Jesus shared several parables that make that pretty clear. The other four characteristics aren't so readily embraced these days. Right now, is the kingdom really cosmic? Right now, is the kingdom only spiritual or is it also physical? What do we mean by the fact that the kingdom is already here but not yet? And is the kingdom of light truly greater than the kingdom of darkness right now? Doesn't always appear like it. Perhaps we've never really thought of the kingdom in these terms, what would it mean for how we live and operate in the world if the kingdom really is right here, right now? If it does have cosmic impact, if it is both physical and spiritual, if it is truly greater than the domain of darkness? 
What would it mean for our spiritual formation, our journey to become more like this king? What might it mean for our culture? Let's work through a possible answer to a very basic question. What is the kingdom of light? Well, there are many ways to define it, but we're going to land on a working definition that we'll use here throughout Season 4. And over the next few episodes, we're going to explore these four sometimes contested characteristics of the kingdom. Is it actually here right now? Is it cosmic? Does it have physical properties? And is it actually greater than the dark domain at this very moment? So let's start with a theologian's definition of the kingdom. Dr. Jeremy Treat developed an eight-word answer, and it provides a great launching point. The kingdom of light is, quote, God's reign through God's people over God's place, end quote. I like this definition because, as my 12th grade English teacher used to say, it's trite, pithy, and succinct. Jesus is the king of kings, so I think we agree that he's reigning. He's reigning through his people. This phrase takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. God's primary role for humans is to rule and reign the earth on behalf of its creator. We rule over God's place. All right, well, what is God's place? Well, the entire universe is his place, though this definition, I guess, alludes to our particular corner of it, the earth. So this is a good starting definition to keep in mind. The kingdom of light is God's reign through God's people over God's place. What I don't like about this definition is that it lacks energy, momentum, transformation. It paints a more passive, static picture compared to the radical inbreaking of ideas that are turning the world upside down. Back in episode 60, I shared that we're going to explore the kingdom of light as an invasion of God's ideas into his world that had been claimed by the kingdom of darkness and its ideas. So in order to explain this way of framing the kingdom, let's step back just one bit. We've proposed that human beings aren't primarily thinkers and we're not even primarily believers. We're primarily beings of desire. We're lovers. That's an idea of anthropology, what it means to be human. The core of who we are is our hearts or our spirits. At the very bedrock of our hearts sit at least two things, our desires, what we truly love, and the ideas that form us. Ideas are generally unconscious assumptions or principles that have been formed in our hearts through all sorts of things, but primarily through our experiences, our relationships, and our environments. Now, ideas aren't so much intellectual conclusions as they are experienced realities. I know that sounds weird, but that's what they are. Sometimes ideas align with our beliefs and doctrinal statements, but many times they don't. Because our ideas usually power and govern us from behind the scenes, it's vital that we dig into our hearts to discern what's going on. Otherwise, our belief statements aren't really worth a whole lot. This is why Dallas Willard defined discipleship as the progressive transformation of ideas. If we become more aware of the ideas that govern us, and we compare them to Jesus' ideas, we now have some helpful context for our journey into what we call deep discipleship. We are now becoming more like him versus simply collecting facts about him. This is spiritual formation at the core of who we are, and this is where Jesus invites us to meet him. So when we start exploring the kingdom of light as an inbreaking of ideas, we're talking about the transformation of the human heart at its deepest level and how that transformation spills out into the rest of the world. Ideas come from two places, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. 
Now, you've heard me say that light ideas lead to human flourishing and beauty and goodness. Dark ideas are designed to kill us. It's now time to crack that egg open and really explore the major themes of these two categories of ideas. So what are some descriptions or themes that come to mind when we consider the impact of dark ideas? Well, we already know they lead to death. Dark ideas disintegrate. They divorce. They devalue. Diminish. The ideas of the kingdom of darkness demean. They distort. They detach. Ideas of darkness take good things and destroy them. They separate things that aren't meant to be separated. Just consider death. Death is the separation of our physical dimensions from our spiritual dimensions. And it's distasteful to us. Why? Well, because of an initial idea of anthropology with which we're all born. We aren't meant to be separated. Whether we're conscious of it or not, our hearts know that it isn't good to be split apart. Why is divorce so painful? Well, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We rip apart two people who are glued together. It really hurts. Kyle and I chatted about wokeism last episode. You might remember we all have six core ideas that have an enormous impact on who we are, how we operate in the world, and the one category that rules them all is this idea of identity. And one of the tenets of woke ideology is the idea that we can change our gender at will. This is a harmful distortion. It's a diminishing, a devaluation of an idea of identity. And its impact is real and deadly. The National Institutes of Health report that 82% of transgender individuals have considered killing themselves, and 40% have actually attempted suicide, with suicidality highest among transgender youth. Certainly there are various factors that impact this unfortunate and sobering statistic, but we might start by exploring how a core idea of identity becomes so distorted in the first place. Well, what's at the heart of racism? Devaluing another image bearer based on external characteristics. What's at the root of abuse? Ideas that demean and debase another person in order to exploit them. Ideas of darkness rip apart things that are meant to hold together. They devalue things that are meant to be valued. They disintegrate things that are meant to stay integrated. This is why it's so important to explore ideas in our hearts and in our homes and in our churches and in the culture. When we discover various indicators of ideas of darkness in our thought patterns, our words, our behaviors, how we use time and money, that's a pretty good time to go exploring how those dark ideas were formed in the first place and why. Okay, if we frame the kingdom of light as the inbreaking of a system of ideas now back to reclaim a good world that's become distorted, what sort of descriptions and themes do we associate with this idea system? Restore. Ideas of light put things back together. Reconcile. They put things back into right relationship. Redeem. Ideas of light purchase back. Rescue. Ideas of light save us. Reverse. They turn around what's been misdirected. Resurrect. Ideas of light bring things back to life. Recreate. Ideas of light remake what's been destroyed. Renew. They make something new again. We find a whole lot of words here beginning with the prefix re. Re means to return to a previous state or action. If the kingdom of light and its ideas are characterized by words beginning with this prefix re, what sort of previous state or action are they returning us to? Well, to what God originally intended. 
to his original ideas that lead to goodness and truth and beauty and flourishing. In effect, to the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt with man on the mountain, where he templed with us so that we would rule, reign, create, form, subdue, and build together, where everything was good. Okay, but here we need to stop and do a gut check on this word, good. So let's dig a bit deeper. We're going to go down the rabbit hole now. The kingdom of darkness is characterized by ideas that lead to disintegration, devaluation, disillusion, disorganization, disunity, death. The kingdom of light is characterized by ideas that lead to restoration, redemption, reunification, reconciliation, resurrection. The kingdom of light is returning us to what God originally intended. Well, how is that possible if things are no longer good? This is a rather prickly idea that's contested in Western culture and certainly in the Western church. Is creation, mankind, and culture good? My impression is that because of fatalism or personal experience or a general sense of pessimism, most Christians would say no or wouldn't be sure how to answer the question. Whether we're conscious of it or not, our hearts actually don't believe that creation, mankind, and culture are actually good. I suspect most of us agree that God's original creation was good. I mean, he said it. And that includes everything, both visible and invisible. It includes human beings. And then comes Genesis 3, and a lot of things fall apart. However, does sin and these ideas of darkness now make creation, humans, and culture inherently bad? If so, how do we reconcile passages such as 1 Timothy 4? Paul says, quote, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer, end quote. Paul obviously penned these words after the fall, so at least he thought that everything that God creates is still good, and creation is ongoing, so this is no small point. Theologian Albert Walters provides a framework to help us sort of get our heads around this. So picture an X and a Y axis on a grid. The x-axis, which is the horizontal one, is what Walters calls structure. The y-axis, that's vertical, is what he calls direction. The x-axis, structure, is, quote, anchored in the law of creation, what has often been referred to by such words as substance or essence or nature. The y-axis, direction, by contrast, designates the order of sin and redemption, the distortion or perversion of creation through the fall on the one hand, and the redemption and restoration of creation in Christ on the other, end quote. So the x-axis is the innate goodness of creation, starting at the beginning of time and continuing on throughout history. It's the essential structure of it. The y-axis is the direction of the thing as it's pulled and pushed by, at least in the soil and roots language, the influence of ideas. So something that's created that is bending towards darkness falls lower and lower on the y-axis. Something that's created that bends towards light trends higher and higher on the y-axis. It's this x-axis, the essence of a good creation, that generally gets us tripped up. Walters writes, quote, God does not allow man's disobedience to turn his creation into utter chaos. Instead, he maintains his creation in the face of all of the forces of destruction. Creation is like a leash that keeps a vicious dog in check, end quote. In other words, the x-axis is innately good and keeps things on the y-axis from falling down off the grid. 
He goes on, quote, Again, we must point out that however intimately they may be intertwined in our actual experience, the strict distinction between structure and direction is of the greatest importance. The great danger is always to single out some aspect or phenomenon of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of human apostasy as the villain in the drama of human life. Such an error is tantamount to reducing direction to structure to conceiving of the good-evil dichotomy as intrinsic to the creation itself. Okay, so this takes a while to marinate in the sauce pot. Creation is inherently good. We may reject the creator and so we're separated from him. We may choose to distort and diminish his good creation, but creation in its essence is good. Culture in its essence is good. Let's go back to the seven mountains. Okay, here's a little experiment. I'm going to speak the seven categories of culture. And as I do, I want you to identify the impressions of each of them that comes to your mind. Do you get the impression of good or evil when I mention each of the seven mountains? So here we go. Family, church, education, business, arts and entertainment, government, media. What impression came to your heart and mind when I said each of those words, good or evil? Okay, so I played you a bit here. I put them in a certain order because chances are your immediate impression of good or not good changed as I read the list. So family, that seems pretty good. Many of us think church is good. Education can be pretty good. Business, eh, it depends. The arts, well, now we're getting a bit queasy. The government, that depends on your political persuasion. And the media, well, that's the spawn of Satan. All right, let's go back to our x-axis. Is the institution of the family inherently good? In a world with a mom and a dad and a stable home, is that good? Most people would say yes. Education, is it good that children are educated? Is that an inherently good thing to do? Most people would say yes. Well, business, is business in its essence good? That goods and services are provided, that people are working, that jobs are provided. Is government in its essence good? Is it good that a structure exists to protect people, to secure rights, to maintain order? Is it good that we have all sorts of technology and communication mediums to communicate stories and messages? Is it inherently good that we have access to information, that our imaginations can be stirred and fired up and moved by great storytelling? Well, now we've hit the bottom of the rabbit hole. All seven mountains are actually inherently good. It's what we do with them that determines where they fall on the y-axis. Are we using an engaging culture towards human flourishing, restoration, and redemption? Is our influence moving up the y-axis? Or, either through our activity or our passivity, are various mountains falling down the y-axis? We might struggle to get our minds around all of this, but it's really important for our exploration of the kingdom. God's creation is inherently good. Its essence, its nature is good. It's the x-axis. It's marred, it's tainted, it's corrupted by sin and the ideas of darkness. That's the downward trend of the y-axis. However, ideas of light redeem, restore. That's the upward trend of the y-axis. Walters provides this helpful summary. Quote, What was formed in creation has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. End quote. Is this our expectation of the kingdom of light? 
Is this our expectation of ourselves? In other words, if we were to lay out this structure, direction, concept over all four of our relationships with God and others and ourselves and creation and culture, is this the way we perceive the kingdom as reforming a good creation that has been marred by darkness and restoring it to the way it should be? I sometimes wonder if we've lost some of the romance of the kingdom of light. Perhaps we've misplaced the story of it. We're going to talk about this more down the road, but taken as a whole, the kingdom narrative in the Bible should cause us to gasp. It captures our imagination. It awakens a sense of energy and power and movement. It woos us into wanting to learn more about this king and to yearn for his kingdom. The Bible takes us from garden to garden as we step into God's story from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. From the raw mountaintop paradise where God dwells with Adam and Eve to the final joining of heaven and earth where God's city comes down to permanently fuse with the new earth. Where God dwells not just with two people, but with a sweeping history of nations. The imagery of trees, rivers, water, land, jewels, light, it's hard for us to take in at both the beginning and the end of the story. It's like Moses and John are straining to find the right words to describe things that really can't be described with words. These ideas that give birth to Eden, that incepted Jesus' kingdom, and that now live in us as we await heaven and earth rejoined are powerful, somewhat mysterious, and working in ways we don't really understand. I'm reminded of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the classic children's book by C.S. Lewis. Aslan, the great lion, has given up his life for Edmund, one of the four children. They think the evil white witch has defeated all that's good when, quote, at that moment they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is there more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had ever seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backward. Death itself working backwards. There's that sense of reversal again. It's a word worth recapturing today. If I may use the word magic, I fear we often forget the magic of the kingdom of light is older, more powerful than the domain of darkness. The ideas of light are older than time. They're original. They transcend time. The ideas of darkness are cheap distortions, repackaged knockoffs. Certainly dark ideas are powerful, but I fear we often give them far more power than they actually possess. I suspect that gives the enemy great satisfaction. So I hesitate to use Dr. Treat's definition of the kingdom as good as it is, God's reign through God's people over God's place. It seems like we should find something that hints at all of these re-words that characterize the kingdom of light. We want our working definition to remind us that ideas of light are always returning us to something older, 
something more profound, something good, always good. I mean, really, the ideas of light point us both backwards and forwards at the same time, both to Eden and to new Eden. Since we focus so much here on our four relationships, let's just play with this. The kingdom of light is returning our relationships back to the way they should be and to the way they will be. Our relationship with God is restored to what it was and to what it will be. Our relationship with others is being renewed, made new again. Our relationships with ourselves are being redeemed, bought back after their distortion. And even our role as rulers of creation and culture is being brought back into right relationship. It's being reconciled. Well, there's the word. All four of our relationships being made right. Isn't that what Paul talks about in his letter to the Colossians, the very first piece of scripture we looked at back in season one? Quote, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, end quote. The kingdom of light reconciles all things. It puts all of our relationships back the way they're supposed to be and the way they will be. Well, how does it do that? If we're going to stick to our theme of taking dark ideas and turning them into light ideas, our definition is now coming together. If Jesus was the inception of a new kingdom, a kingdom of heart-redeeming ideas, ideas that predate time itself, and those ideas defeat and conquer newer, distorted, debilitating ideas across all four of our relationships, let's draft a starting point. The kingdom of light is the unstoppable reconciliation of all things through the transformation of dark ideas to light. It's 14 words instead of 8, but I think it's worth a shot. We could also simply call it the great reversal, but that seems a little bit too simple. So let's chew on this definition for a while. The kingdom of light is the unstoppable reconciliation of all things through the transformation of dark ideas to light. This transformation typically starts where ideas sit in the bedrock of our hearts. From there, it springs up from our roots, up through our trunks, and out through our leaves and branches, redeeming, restoring, reversing, reconciling, reclaiming, what's been destroyed and distorted and devalued and demeaned. Aslan, it seems, is on the move. He certainly isn't safe, but he is good. Thanks for listening. For more information, check us out at SoilandRoots.org, and you can email us at fish at SoilandRoots.org. We'll see you next time.